First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Say these words when you lie down and when you rise up, when you go out and when you return in times of mourning, times of joy. Inscribe them on your doorpost, tattoo them on your shoulders, teach them to your children, your neighbors, your enemies. Recite them in your sleep. Another world is possible. I wonder sometimes if we've become too pragmatic too practical, empirical, methodical, logical, evidence-based, and by we, I mean Unitarian Universalists, we who have inherited this tradition of reasonable religion, which always has struck me as an oxymoron, a contradiction that's just waiting to explode or implode or otherwise prove impotent right when we need unflinching faith the most. What is reasonable religion? What purpose could religion really serve, if it has to pass the test of reason every time you need to mourn, for example, I mean, cry and cry your heart out, convulsed with grief and fury at everything, at God, when somebody whom you love has died. There's no room for reason there. No place for rational religion. Even months later, years later, when people just shake their heads and say, you should really be over that by now. You're not doing very well. The stages of grief say blah, blah, blah. But you're still brokenhearted, broken-spirited, just broken through and through. What purpose could religion really serve if it has to pass the test of reason every time you need to praise the day, for example, or give thanks out loud or delight in music or children or joy? You've seen the news. You know what's going on. It weighs on you like lead. And still, check it out. (laughs) The sun is out. And you are grateful and amazed and glad and just laugh out loud delighted. And that makes no sense at all under the circumstances, our circumstances. But there's no room for perfect logic here. Even in the midst of struggle, neglect of joy is blasphemy against the gift of life. What purpose could religion, our religion, serve? if it has to pass the test of reason every time you maybe need to love someone who maybe doesn't quite deserve it, maybe proof can't prove that they deserve it, but you're called to love them anyway. There's no space in the equation for the sterile exact math of enlightenment thought that's bedazzled us since the 19th century. Sometimes, all the time, actually, we're called to love humans at their most unlovable to love and forgive, starting with our own shabby, imperfect selves. This is a universalist commission, and there's not a drop of reason in it, not an ounce of logic. You could search all day for empirical evidence of your own shining worth and dignity, your inherent beauty not earned but stamped upon you. You could search your whole life long for evidence of that, and it might not add up, but still it's true. So what would be the purpose or the point of a religion that said otherwise about you or anyone else? What purpose 
could a religion serve if it had to pass the test of reason? Every time you need to muster righteous rage, speak truth to power, terrible truth to terrifying principalities and powers, and bring your unchecked outrage to the street, to the state house, to city hall, to everywhere, without pausing every single time to evaluate what good will this do, this marching, this protest, this letter, this uprising, this revolutionary love. Sometimes there's no time for that, and a wait would be a sin. In Memphis last week, before the videos came out, Sarah Lynn Davis, the police chief of all people, said to her city, I expect you to feel what the family of Tyre Nichols feels. She said, I expect you to feel outrage. It seems to me that Unitarian Universalism, if it offers anything at all, says this to us. You are dignified and worthy. Everybody is. So act like it. The light that shines inside you is primordial light. It is powerful and holy and beautiful. Act like it. Walk around as if it were true. Live your life, sing your songs, grieve your unspeakable sorrows, shout your gratitude, tremble, do your work, speak your truth, bless the earth and defend each other fiercely as if at any moment you might die, as if at some point you might die, as if you have nothing to lose. You are dignified and worthy. Everybody is. Act like it. So be it. That, to me, is the doctrine of our faith. And sometimes I wonder if somehow we've strayed from the fiery center of it, if we become a little too orderly and jaded, too smart for our own good and everybody else's. What purpose could our religion serve if it has to pass the test every time you need to dream or cast a vision of the future that is rooted in the present, rooted in the past, but so radically different, a future so utterly changed, that we might not even recognize the ashes of the present world in the glory of the new one. Like all of the things in that first poem that Barb read to us, all those crazy, unimaginable, but actually, yes, things. This is a good time, this troubled time we're in, to think about telling new stories and listening hard for the stories other people tell? What if Unitarian Universalists listened to the stories, the testimony, the grief, the joy, the love, the rage of black people, brown people, native people, people of color, trans people, queer people, people on the margins, both within our churches and everybody who's not within our churches? Everything would change. And we always say we're done with dogma. And yet there are ways in which we worship white supremacy as if it were a gospel truth. What can we bring ourselves to imagine? And here's where logic definitely leaves us. And maybe at last we're converted to a saving faith, a religion that likes reason very much, but loves imagination even more, loves passion more, and heart and soul and sacrifice, and service to a larger love that transcends our understanding. Long before the Civil War, but culminating then, Universalist and Unitarian congregations, like other sort of progressive Protestants, were sorely torn. The rupture between churches 
or within a certain church, and also inside individual people. The moral dilemma that was running right through the heart of some people, the rupture over slavery, was a jagged gash. And though it came to crisis in the years leading to the Civil War and through the war itself, it didn't start in 1860 or 1850 or the 1800s at all. It dated at least to 1619, before Unitarians and Universalists were even a thing on this continent, before they'd split away from the congregational mainline. It came to crisis with the Civil War. And looking back all that way from here, it is hard for us to believe, it's painful to know, that some of our congregations, some of our ministers, and some of our people were not abolitionists at all. The people were divided. They were struggling inside and among themselves. Some didn't want to get involved. You can read the record of it. It's just too messy, too political. That's not really a proper role for the church. They counseled patients. They fired ministers if they spoke too loudly or too much. They spoke in measured tones about and directly to people who literally had chains around their necks, whose children were placed in child-size shackles when they were led away. Reasonable people, good church people, discouraged radical resistance. We'll get there, they said. We just need to do this through proper and orderly channels. Uprising, rebellion, burning stuff, demonstrations in the street, these are not good tactics for us, unseemly. And there were others in our pulpits and our pews, this is in the north now, who just flat out didn't believe black people were worth it. They had all kinds of pseudo-scientific evidence and theological evidence to back that up, and they gave lectures on it. And then there were still others, many, who said, no, of course this is a moral crisis, of course this cannot wait, but deep down, they could not imagine, or they chose not to try to imagine, an America without slavery at the center, without slavery at the heart of the capitalist soul, the lifeblood, literally, of the economy. They could not imagine abolition, even though they worked for it, because they'd never lived in that United States. It didn't exist. And it felt like this crazy, naive dream for idealistics dreamers. And failing to imagine abolition, they couldn't really picture free black people either. And that failure of imagination haunts us still. It's painful to hold our history entire, but we have to. After George Floyd died in Minneapolis, after he was murdered by a police officer with three uniformed accomplices, after Judea Reynolds, the child who told the story that Barb read to us and her cousin Darnella Frazier showed the world what had happened, there was lots of talk in the city and all around the country about police reform and a new abolition movement to dismantle policing as we know it. And people are still talking, and the volume varies now. Sometimes it's really loud. Sometimes it quiets down. Sometimes it explodes again, as we've seen in recent weeks since the lynching on January 7th of Tyre Nichols by five officers with at least eight uniformed bystanders, accomplices, other cops, firefighters, EMTs, 
all standing. He was a hundred yards from home, from his mother, for whom he cried again and again before collapsing. And when they were done, as he lay unconscious, no one did anything but brag. The officers are black, but racism is not black and white. It is not simple. It is not about black and white, but black and blue. It is about how police, no matter who they are, have killed and killed and will keep killing unarmed black men and boys and black women and trans black folk because the system itself is fatally flawed. It is about race, no matter the race of the officers themselves. It's also not about your niece or your nephew who all their life wanted to be a police officer and they went to the academy and now they're in uniform somewhere and they are serving with courage and compassion and integrity and the family is proud and rightly so. It is not about members of this congregation who may be retired officers or cops. It's not about individuals, whether they act well or poorly. It's about systemic ruin. The history of policing here is complicated. And that, and we know that part of the institution, the tradition, the mythological reality of the police has its historic root in the need to serve and protect with a murderous efficiency, a social order dependent upon slavery. And again, individuals may not be aware of this at all. The slave patrollers with their badges, their guns, their night watches, north and south, so much of what we're living now actually starts there, before the police were even invented. It took a lot of weaponry and a lot of complicit silence behind the weaponry to defend what's morally indefensible. It took an embedded army, protected, funded, legitimized, by conventional, well-educated, sometimes liberal, white silence. And some of our universalist and Unitarian ancestors were abolitionists for sure, but many just couldn't allow themselves or compel themselves to imagine the breakup of the world they knew. And who can? I, it's hard. I can't imagine it. It's hard. So we're careful in judgment. And we don't need to waste our time wondering, what would I have done back then? Because we live right now. You can wonder about right here. What would the abolition of policing as we know it, reform from the ground up, from the outside in, every stick of it dismantled and put back together, even begin to look like? And before we dismiss the question as ridiculous or irresponsible, we remember that 150 years from now, someone will be standing right here. People in our own churches will look back on us, if our churches exist, and shake their heads and say, wow, those people back in 2023, they were so smart, so practical and cautious. They were so polite, civilized. But they could not dream a dream to save their lives. What was even the point of their rational religion, that old Unitarian universalism? They were right there in the midst of the great transformation, cracking the world open, and they didn't notice. They maybe were too comfortable, too timid. They must have had too much to lose. After George Floyd died, 
the University of Minnesota severed ties with the Minneapolis Police Department, which is a notorious department. The park board, the school board, teachers union all followed suit, and some of that's been walked back now, all this time since, as conversations have continued and deepened and gotten wiser and more, more voices in the room, passionate conversations. And other changes became law. Chokeholds, which were legal in Minneapolis, are banned now. And elsewhere, and this was all directly down to people in the street demanding change, elsewhere communities are asking, what would happen if we sent mental health workers to certain 911 calls instead of the police or with them? Or medics to opioid overdose calls instead of the police every time? And turning routine traffic enforcement, taillights, etc., over to unarmed teams who could do that just fine instead of bringing weapons. I wrote all that and then saw in the New Yorker last night that the city of Albuquerque, which has a notorious uh, police death rate, killing, um, is doing exactly this. That working with social workers, with mental health workers, with the school district, with retired officers, they are bringing unarmed mental health assistance to calls before the police go. And the results are new but they're staggeringly beautiful. The UUA posted on its website guidelines for our congregations, urging us to think hard about what circumstance would compel us to call the police in an emergency and offering all kinds of alternatives, not saying you should do this or you have to, but saying when there's not an emergency going on, imagine it ways of being in relation with each other, with our communities to keep everybody safe, being in relationship with our principles, our values, our imagination, our history, and our future. They're difficult discernments. The church I served in Minnesota welcomed guests, as you do here. Unhoused families stayed a month at a time. And one time in the summer, a neighbor called the police. It wasn't nighttime. It was daylight. It was well before 8 o'clock. Children and mothers were out on the church playground with our volunteers, and a neighbor called the police because it was too loud. It wasn't too loud. They complained about a disturbance. There was no disturbance. These are toddlers and their mothers, right? Whoever it was didn't bother to call the church first, didn't bother to walk over. Maybe they didn't realize, or maybe they did, I hope not, that to call the police on a bunch of black and brown women and their kids on a white church in a white neighborhood, that is an act of potentially legal, lethal aggression and an ugly mistake. They were all traumatized that night. And even though the officer who came handled it so well and so respectfully, why? Because he knew us. And I think he was there with great reluctance. He was embarrassed. And we knew then, that day, that before hosting people again in our church, before we could in conscience say, here is safe and welcome space for you. You can be at ease. You can be at home. Sleep well. Before we could do that, we'd have to leaflet the neighborhood, hold community meetings, lay down the law of right relationship, make some righteous noise, testify to our faith that another world is possible. 
And just as we were discussing all of that and getting ready, COVID came down and the program shut down and I left and I don't know if all that happened, but I hope it did. What would abolition look like? Not trying to do it, we're trying to imagine it, right? Feel like, and who gets to write that new story? Who gets to spend all the money we'd save reinventing policing? And who gets to redefine words like safety, security, protect and serve, keeping the peace? Picture the day in which, in the words of the poet, we'll be too busy healing, tending, child-rearing, making music for making war. So the soldiers will have no orders. The police will have quiet radios and no calls and will tear apart the prisons and send the guards to rehab where first graders will teach them slowly to trust humanity again, beginning with their own. And we'll use the bricks and fences to build community centers with wide porches where the grannies can knit and they'll keep watch. What does your faith compel you to try to imagine? What purpose can our religion really serve if it has to pass the test of reasonable every time it's time to call for justice? Tyre Nichols and his mother and his child and the officers who killed him and you and I, we are all bound together, right? in ways of being that are old and evil, and they're so old that it looks like the way things have to be, and it's not. Because I believe in the power of people and the power of love to bend the long arc of the universe toward justice, I refuse to believe this way of being is intractable. We've lived for a long time, since before the founding of the country, with structures that make people in our cities, black, brown, Asian, native, non-white people, in the city, in the suburb, in the rural towns, feel like they live in occupied territory. Systems of militarized policing that descend directly, they're traceable, to pre-emancipation posses of slave catchers, night riders, terrorists, some sanctioned by the state, some not. That line traces directly to the profiling that pulls over one mother's son and not someone else's for expired license tabs, broken taillights, whatever it is. All these infractions that have now become capital offenses. We forget it's not an accident. It's not a matter of a few bad apples. We forget how fear mixed with bias, mixed with training or bad training, mixed with the presumption of police impunity, mixed with the officer's own trauma that's sustained day after day, an impossible job, mixed with guns in every single hand, mixed with white supremacy's defense of capitalism at any cost. Well, that is a lethal mix. It's not an accident how often it ends with someone beautiful, dead, who shouldn't be, and how frequently it ends but seems never to, with mothers weeping, fathers weeping, grandmothers weeping, children weeping for their dead siblings, dead parents, cousins, friends, and for themselves as they begin to calculate the odds of growing up at all. It doesn't have to be like this. It was an act on act on act on act of human will that made it new actions can change it. We see the footage of a young man on the ground 
calling for his mom. And we rush by instinct, I do, to explanation. Why did this happen? Rationalization, normalization. Because our hearts are broken and we think we can't stand the breaking. May we remember that we actually can. May we not rush to feeling better ourselves till the time is right for feeling better, nor rush to comfort and forgetting, but just dwell in the sadness for a time as if somebody we loved had died. Dwell in the confusion, the swirl of anger and illogical disruption, honoring the grief of yet another woman, of yet another beautiful son, and the grief of a four-year-old whose father won't be coming home, honoring the grief with all the rage that's in us. A light went out of the world in Memphis. What would be the point of a rational religion that reasoned that away? Say the words when you lie down and when you rise up, when you go out and when you come in, in times of mourning and in times of joy. Teach them to your children, to your neighbors, your enemies, Another world is possible. For just a moment, we'll hold silence together. <laughs> 